there, and welcome to the Speaking of Texas podcast. Whether you have a deep-rooted passion for Texas or just a passing interest in it, this is the podcast for you. Here we are deeply ensconced in yet another Christmas season. By now, we've all been surrounded by the trappings of an impending Christmas, not the least of which is the music. We hear those familiar tunes and carols as we go from place to place and store to store every year, and that's our topic today. Have you ever thought about the Christmas songs that we hear or sing every year? Did you ever think about where they came from? Well, sit back and relax as I unwrap the Christmas song origins. We have enjoyed them for years. Have you ever thought about how those joyous Christmas songs came about? Some of these carols that you thought went back several hundred years are actually relatively new. Others have fascinating stories surrounding their origins. The origin of Christmas carols goes all the way back to the time of Christ. It is believed that the apostles sang songs of praise based on the Psalms. The word carol comes from the old French word caroler, which means to dance in a circle. One of our very earliest Christmas songs was Jesus Refulsit Omnimium. It appeared in the 4th century. St. Francis of Assisi introduced carols to church services in the 12th century. The songs were tended to be rather somber in nature. During the Renaissance of the 1400s, that was the time of Michelangelo and da Vinci. The lighter, more upbeat songs began to emerge. The earliest known English carol appeared in 1410. The Gutenberg Press, famous for the magnificent Bibles, also made for the wide distribution of carols to the masses. In the 1400s, Christmas celebrations were strongly suppressed by the Puritans. Truth be known, Christmas didn't become a widely celebrated holiday until the 1800s. As a result, many of the Christmas carols that we love today were composed fairly recently. In England, between 1649 and 1660, Oliver Cromwell, who believed Christmas should be a solemn day, banned the singing of carols. Protestants, under the urging of Martin Luther, started embracing the practice. In fact, many of the worshippers fled Europe to the other parts of the world and brought their music with them. John de Bruber wrote the first American Christmas carol in 1649. It was called, Jesus is Born. Dr. Edmund Spears, a Unitarian minister, wrote a poem in 1849, and a year later, an editor and critic for the New York Tribune wrote a melody called Carol, inspired by the poem. Dr. Edmund Spears, a Unitarian minister, wrote a poem in 1849, and a year later, an editor and critic for the New York Tribune wrote a melody called Carol, inspired by the poem. Richard Starrs Willis had created It Came Upon a Midnight Clear, and although no one is completely certain, some research indicates that cowboy singer Montana Slim, whose given name was Wilf Carter, wrote Jolly Old St. Nicholas. The tune Greensleeves goes back to the time of the original Queen Elizabeth. In 1850, lyrics were added that were neither religious nor respectable. But in 1865, William Chatterton Dix wrote The Manger Throne. Three of those verses became What Child Is This? We Three Kings of Orient Are, usually thought to be older than it actually is, was written in America in 1857 for a Christmas pageant in New York City. An old Welsh melody is at the root of Deck the Halls. Although Mozart used the tune in a piano and violin piece in the 1700s, the words written in America 
would not come for almost another hundred years. The first two verses of Away in a Manger were originally published in 1885 in a Lutheran school book. James Murray published it in 1887 under the title of Luther's Cradle Hymn, leaving some people to think that Martin Luther had actually written it. No one is certain who wrote the music, but it is believed to be American also. There's a bit of controversy surrounding one of our most famous classics. Who among us has not heard the story of Silent Night, Stille Nacht? Folklore has it that the song was actually composed on a Christmas Eve in 1818 after it was discovered that hungry mice ruined the baffles of the church organ. Joseph Moore, the assistant minister, supposedly quickly wrote the words and Franz Gruber composed the music in time for the midnight service. Now, that may only be folklore. Recent evidence indicates that an old manuscript of recently discovered shows that Gruber wrote the music two to four years after Moore had written the words. No matter, though, it has remained a favorite for nearly 200 years. Silent Night is such a powerful song that it actually stopped a war. Well, for a while. During World War I, the Germans, Americans, British, and French troops actually put down their arms and held an unofficial truce on Christmas Eve and serenaded and harmonized with each other to the haunting melody of Silent Night. Oh, little town of Bethlehem was the result of Bishop Philip Brooks being so impressed with seeing Bethlehem from the hills of Palestine at night. He wrote the words in Philadelphia in 1868 after his trip to the Holy Land. His organist, Louis Radner, wrote the music three years later for his Sunday school children's choir. Believe it or not, Jingle Bells was written for a Thanksgiving program. It was so popular that the children begged to sing it again at Christmas, and it's been a fixture there ever since. There is some controversy about the song, though. The composer, John Pierpont, is said to have written the song in Medford, Massachusetts, sometime in the 1850s. He later moved to Savannah, Georgia, where he received the copyright for the song in 1857. The controversy stems out of where he actually wrote it. He certainly wrote about his memories of growing up in New England. Factions in Savannah, however, have provided a good case to show that he was in Savannah when he wrote it. Either way, there are markers in each city commemorating the site where each believes the little ditty was written. One of the more interesting stories surrounds the 12 days of Christmas. When you listen to it, it may strike you as light and somewhat non-essential. However, Nothing could be further from the truth. From 1558 to 1829, Catholics in England were forbidden to practice their religion. It was law. If you were caught, it carried automatic imprisonment, perhaps hanging, or you could be a little, you could be a whole head shorter. Now, the song was written as a memory aid for children to learn their catechism. Each strange gift of the song holds a seriously special meaning. First, the true love refers to God, not an earthly suitor. The me represents every baptized person. The partridge in the pear tree was Jesus Christ. Christ was portrayed as a mother partridge feigning injury to protect her nestling young. It is also believed that it represented Christ's sadness over the fate of Jerusalem. And here's what the other gifts mean. Two turtle doves the Old and New Testaments, three French hens, faith, hope, and charity. 
four calling birds, the four gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, five golden rings, the first five books of the Old Testament, six geese laying, the six days of creation, seven swans a swimming, the seven sacraments, maids a milking, the eight beatitudes, ladies dancing, the nine fruits of the Holy Spirit, the Lord's a leaping, the ten commandments, pipers piping, the eleven faithful apostles, drummers drumming, the twelve points of doctrine in the Apostles' Creed. Now, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer is an outright invention of 20th century commercialism. He first flew into the scenes in 1939 as part of a promotional gimmick for Montgomery Wards. They asked one of their young copywriters, Robert May, to come up with a story for their annual Christmas coloring book. The original story was really nothing more than an adaptation of the tale of the Ugly Duckling. The reindeer's first name was Rollo, but that was considered to be too cheery to be a misfit. Then it was Reginald, but then that was too British, so May settled on Rudolph. He tried the story out for his four-year-old daughter, and she loved it. May's boss was a tougher sell, though. He was worried about the implications of the red nose. He was concerned that people would think that they were endorsing drinking and drunkenness. May and a staff cartoonist went to the Lincoln Park Zoo and sketched pictures of deer and colored the noses red. The illustrations were approved, and Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer was born. The retailer gave away 2.4 million coloring books that very year, 6 million by 1946. After World War II, Rudolph became hugely popular. There were many demands for licensing the character. Because May created it while he was working for the company, they held the copyright. May found himself hopelessly in debt after the death of his wife. He persuaded Sewell Avery, the company president, to turn the rights over to him. He was financially set for the rest of his life. The story was turned into a nine-minute cartoon in 1948. But Rudolph, well, he wasn't done yet. May's brother-in-law was the songwriter Johnny Marks, it was Marx who composed the words and the music that we sing today. Actually, it almost didn't get recorded. Many recording companies just simply did not want to tamper with the Santa Claus legend, so they wouldn't touch it. Finally, the cowboy singer Gene Autry stepped in and recorded it in 1949. It sold two million copies that year, and it went on to be one of the best-selling songs of all time, second only to White Christmas. In 1964, Burl Ives narrated the TV classic that we see each year. Then there's the granddaddy of them all, White Christmas. Irving Berlin wrote the song for a 1942 movie called Holiday Inn, starring Bing Crosby and Fred Astaire. The movie was about an inn that was only open on holidays. Berlin was commissioned to write and create the songs for each holiday. He later said that writing the Christmas song was the toughest one of them all. Berlin performed the song for Crosby in 1941, and the crooner assured Berlin that it would be a hit, and that proved to be a gross understatement. It was first performed for the public on Crosby's NBC radio show on Christmas night, 1941. It went on to become the biggest-selling single for 50 years, until Elton John's 1998 tribute to Lady Diana, Candle in the Wind. 
White Christmas was the basis of a 1954 movie of the same name starring Bing Crosby, Rosemary Clooney, Vera Ellen, and Danny Kaye. Kay actually wasn't supposed to be the first choice for the role. Fred Astaire declined it after reading the script. Donald O'Connor turned it down due to a back ailment. It then fell on Danny Kay, who, as it turns out, was unnatural for that role. The song also played a part at the end of the Vietnam War. When the evacuation plan was put into motion to get the remaining Americans and loyal Vietnamese to safety, the cue to get to the American embassy was a radio announcement saying it was 105 degrees in Saigon and rising, followed by playing White Christmas. When the song began, the exodus was on. My earliest memories of New England 1950s Christmases were wrapped up in music. I loved those songs. We heard and sang them only part of the year. And when they were gone, well, they were gone. When the next year came around and the songs reappeared, it was like greeting an old familiar friend. In those days, the headquarters of the John Hancock Insurance Company was in nearby Boston. Now, each year they put out a small paper booklet with all the Christmas carols in it. And I remember singing from that old book as a child when I went out singing Christmas carols for the neighbors with my mother and some of her friends. Later, I did that on my own with some school friends. I love those songs, and I totally admit that in those days, I never thought about where they came from. After I got into radio, I became fascinated not with the artists so much, but as the songwriters. I often wondered why a particular song ever got written. What was the story behind any song that caused it to be written? Each of these songs' writers felt a deep-rooted passion for the season and the many emotions that it brings. This year, when you hear these songs, take a moment to think about how they came to be. Maybe now, we'll all have a deeper appreciation for one of our finer traditions. From my house to yours, we wish you a Merry Christmas. I want to thank you for sharing your time with me on this episode of the Speaking of Texas podcast. I have one more Christmas-themed show scheduled on the podcast, and I will explore one of the most famous editorials ever written. Yes, Virginia, there is a Santa Claus. This episode's been brought to you by my Christmas book called Tis the Season, Reflections on Christmas's Past. It's available on Amazon. And until next time, this is your Texas Whisperer, Tweet Scott. We wish you a Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas.